holiday. It was the same present, just two different colors, like the whole thing, right? Um, so we watching TV, and we would hear from the other room, Wesley Parker, are you ready? And then we would just not even flinch, just looking at the TV. Uh, yeah, we're ready. And then every single time, the next question was, do you have your socks and shoes on? And we would look over and see like one shoe, and uh, no. And then it took us probably 12 years before we learned that in the Richardson house, you were not ready until your socks and your shoes were on. Has this changed? Is this still a, a, a pro? Okay, good. Okay, just making sure times uh, haven't changed. So why do I tell you that story? Because this morning, as we walk through the armor of God, we are looking at the shoes. And the word that Paul will pair with these shoes, these metaphorical shoes that we're supposed to put on, is readiness. And we're going to talk about this morning as we're walking through the armor in this series. So um, if you'll bow your head and pray with me, I would love to uh, come to the Lord before we approach this together. Lord, thank you so much for your word. God, I pray that it would teach us. Um, God, I pray that you would increase, uh, that I would decrease. Um, God, this is not about a name. This is not about a high point. Um, God, ultimately, this is about you meeting with your church, with your bride, with your people. Um, so, God, we um, don't stand over your word. Um, God, we submit our lives under it, and we invite you to teach us this morning. Um, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Um, so if you're a guest with us, one of the things we've been doing over the last few weeks is we've been looking at the armor of God as Paul lays out in Ephesians chapter 6 towards the end of the letter. So if you have your Bible and you want to go to Ephesians 6, uh, that's where we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning. Uh, but one of the things that I have particularly loved about this series, and it was something that I did not think about as we were going into it, is we've had the privilege of spending the first few minutes of almost every message um, learning about the enemy's schemes. And usually we take a few minutes before we dive into the piece of the armor for the week, and we've been learning, at least at this campus, uh, we've been learning and developing a just a more robust and a more um, knowledgeable, a more articulate, a more um, accurate theology of who our enemy is and what his schemes are and what he does. And uh, this morning will be no different. Uh, there's a few observations that I want to make as we walk through these few verses in Ephesians 6 about our enemy. And my prayer, and let me say this, we're going to talk about some hard truths this morning. Um, and my prayer, um, one, is that you'd be praying for me, uh, that I would preach this with uh, conviction and not be afraid to present what the Word says, um, regardless of how I think um, I or anyone in here would feel about it, but then also that you would pray that the Lord would use me and it would be helpful to you in these next few minutes. Um, but as we walk through Ephesians 6, if you'll look with me at verse 10, once again, this is the end of Paul's letter, and he has spent three chapters, Ephesians 1 through 3, talking about all that God has done for us in the gospel. There is one command in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, and it's the word remember. That that's all he commands us to do. Remember what Jesus Christ has done for you for three whole chapters. Here's the gospel. Here's who we are in Christ. This is who he's made us to be. We're his church. We're his body, and he's the head, and here's the union that he's purchased for us by his death on the cross. All of these incredible things. And then he turns the page in chapter 4 and starts to give us these imperatives, these commands. Here's how we live in response to what he's done. The gospel always is in that order. Here's what God has done. Here's how we respond. 
It's never, here's what we have to do to get God to do something. God has worked. The work is finished on the cross. Jesus' last sentence, it is finished. The work is done, and now here's how we respond to it. And he's given us this charge, here's what we do, and then he ends with this armor that we're told to put on. And he says in verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And that phrase, be strong, is actually one word in the Greek language, and uh, I would say it for you, but it's this really long word. Um, I'll spare you the Greek language, but I'll say this. It's a passive verb. So what Paul is communicating here when he says be strong is a passive verb is not something that you do. A active verb is Parker hit the ball, right? I'm performing the action. A passive verb is Parker was hit by the ball. It's, some, it's someone that receives the action. So when he says be strong in the Lord, what he's actually saying there is be strengthened. Like you don't, he's not telling you to muster up a strength in your own power. That this is in um, a strength from another source. This is not your own strength that you have to come up with. That God gives us his strength, which is so incredible about this passage, is that you and I are a part of this battle, this war, that has been going on since before God created the world. And because we're united with Christ, if you're a believer in here, you are um, in union with him, you're now adopted into the family of God. We are taking the great commission to our city and to our workplaces and to this community and to the world. Satan is actively opposing the word of God and the work of God, and we are a part of this war. We are going to be attacked. And God gives us not only his strength, he gives us his armor, which is incredible to think about. So it's not something you have to muster up yourself. This is a passive verb. Be strengthened in the Lord. And then he says this, which is really weird in English. He says, in the strength of his might, which is basically like him saying in the strength of his strength, right? Do you notice that? Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his strength, basically. And what's interesting is in the Greek language, Paul uses two different words for strength here. And they mean two different things. He uses, uh, it sounds like karate, he uses kratai and he uses ixus. And kratos or kratai is this word that um, almost always, like literally 99% of the time in the New Testament refers to a supernatural strength. So he says in this supernatural strength, and then he uses this word ixus, which means um, this power that's inherently God's. Like God is all powerful. There's never a moment where God is not powerful. It's just inherently who he is. He's the standard of power. So what Paul is saying here is you're going to be strengthened by the supernatural power that just exudes from the all-powerful God. He's going to give that to you. That's where our strength comes from. It's not something you have to develop on your own. And how do we receive this strength? We put on the armor. He goes in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. And then he tells us why we need to do this. The rest of verse 11, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So Paul is telling us, hey, you are not a part of a human conflict. This is a spiritual war. You need a spiritual power. You need a spiritual armor. This is why we need it. This isn't a physical battle. It's a spiritual one. And God's not only giving you his strength and his power, he's giving you his armor to put on. So 
in these three verses, we see the what? Be strengthened. We see how? By putting on the armor. And we see why. Because you and I, if you are in Christ, you have entered into an army. Paul refers to us as soldiers. That if you are actively living to take the Great Commission to the world, if you are living to show the gospel in your decisions and in the way you treat people and the way you act and the way you live and the way you work and all of those things, you will be attacked. And I mentioned this last week. Some of you may not be feeling the attack because instead of attacking you, Satan has just lulled you to sleep. And he's convinced you to be okay with your sin, to be okay with a mediocre relationship with the Lord, to be okay with compromise, to be okay with um, a less than marriage, whatever it is. Some of you may not be feeling any attack because he's got you right where you want to, dependent on your own money, dependent on yourself, dependent on your stuff, and you haven't even acknowledged that you need him in a while. And I don't say that to condemn you. I say that to warn you if that's you. I don't know. I'm letting the Holy Spirit do whatever he wants to do with that statement. But um, some of us, some of you, maybe you're in here and you are actively pursuing the things of the Lord. Guess what? You will be attacked. And we talked about this last week that when he says Satan has schemes, you may withstand the schemes of the devil. In the Greek, it's the word methodias, and it's where we get the word methods from. That Satan has methods for you. And new arenas of life, new circumstances, he brings new methods. That Satan is good at what he does. He's been doing it for thousands of years. And he, Taylor, makes methods for you. And he will prey on your desires. And we're going to see this very clearly in just a few minutes. But I do want to say this. Last week, we discussed this idea um, that there is this belief going around, especially in today's kind of prosperity gospel world, um, that basically teaches that Satan is sovereign and God is not. And it's this idea that Satan can do whatever he wants and God just has to react to what Satan does. And here's the reality. Someone will be sovereign to you. Either God will be control of all things or Satan will be free to do whatever he wants and God just has to react. Like it's this cosmic chess game and God just has to keep doing counter moves to whatever Satan wants to do. And let me say this. Scripture teaches the complete opposite of that. That in fact, if you read Job, Satan has to approach God and say, hey, can I tempt Job? Can I do this to Job? Can I um, strike him with sickness? Can I kill his livestock? Can I do all of these things? And you see God is the one that allows Satan to do what he does. It's not the other way around. It's not Satan has freedom to do whatever he wants. Now, in God's infinite wisdom, and like I said, I don't want to even try to explain this, God has given Satan this reign on this earth, this ability, and God is tarrying right now. He's tarrying, he's waiting his return so that you and I, his children, can take the gospel to the ends of the earth so that we can keep proclaiming this message. And you may be someone in here this morning that needs to hear the message. We are living in the patience of God, and right now, until he comes, he has given the enemy freedom to roam and to wreak havoc on this earth, to attack. And it is because he is patient and he is merciful and he is kind and he is giving humanity opportunities to repent. And we've been given a role in this. But one of the most common ways that I've seen um, this idea that Satan is sovereign play out um, is with COVID-19. Um, there are pastors all over the country teaching that um, God did not 
allow or create COVID-19, that Satan did it and now God just has to be on the, the defensive and react. That could not be further from the truth. We just walked through the book of Colossians where it literally says in verse 16, for by him all things were created. And just in case we don't understand what all means, he says in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. That in God's infinite wisdom, which as Isaiah says, is as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his ways higher than our ways, so are his thoughts higher than our thoughts. God in his sovereignty and his providence and his wisdom has allowed this virus to wreak havoc on the earth. And the appropriate question is, well, what about all these verses that talk about how God works all things for our good? Well, let's talk about that for a second because man, have we messed up that verse. Because we read that verse, we read Romans 8, 28, and we think he's talking about um, earthly good, more possessions, more health, more wealth, more prosperity. That is not what Romans 8, 28 is talking about. And it's really easy for us to pull that verse out and apply it to what we want it to say. But God doesn't leave us hanging. In fact, Paul is in the middle of an argument in Romans 8, 28, and he gives you the answer. If that's not what good means in Romans 8, 28, then what does it mean? Well, let's look at verse 29. Let's read these together. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So what Paul is saying here is that these people, those people who love God, and then he says they're called, same people, those that are love God, those that are called, in verse 29 he says those that are predestined, but here's what the goal is, that they would be conformed to the image of his son. You know what is best for us is that God would conform us to his image. Not that we would make more money, not that we would get more status, not that we would be healthier and wealthier, that God would make us more like him. That's what's best for you, is that God would conform us to the image of his son, that we would wean off of the pleasures of this world, that we would look more and more like Jesus every day. And that should be a comfort to us. And I don't say that to condemn anybody. Why is that a comfort? Because if that's what's good for us, that God would conform us to the image of his son, then that means God can use not only the great things in our lives, but he can use the hardest moments in our lives for our good. He can use the best moments and the worst moments to conform us to the image of his son. He sure can. And that makes him look incredibly glorious. And I know some of you, I don't even know your story, but I know we live in a broken world. We live in a fallen world and there's so much brokenness in our own families that some of all of us have been through things in your life that you would say, man, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. But for some weird reason, I'm glad the Lord brought me through it because I've grown in a way that I would not have grown if I had avoided that situation. I grew in a way that I couldn't have grown any, any other way, that God used that to make me more like him, to depend on him in a new way, to know him more intimately. That through that valley, through that brokenness, God was conforming me to the image of his son. And that's what's good for us. That's what's best for us. 
So God can use incredible moments and he can use devastating moments to conform us to the image of his son. And there is nothing that I have ever seen in my lifetime that has exposed idols in our hearts like this virus. Who would have thought that we would find security and we would find um, all of this satisfaction and rest in being able to leave our own houses and see our friends? Like there's no other circumstance in my lifetime that I've ever seen that's exposed these kind of idols and these kind of places where I was putting my hope and my trust in. Just the ability to go to work and all these kind of things. Like it has exposed these things. People have had to depend on God in a whole new way. God has used this virus, especially for those that are in Christ, if you are born again, to grow us in ways that we had not seen before, to cause us to have a deeper intimacy with him. He has forced so many people to think about life, to think about eternity, to think about death, to think about why we're here, who made us. He has used this to get all of our eyes upward, to get our gaze off of this world and to think about, okay, why are we actually here? And he is conforming us to his image. And he is using this for our good. And it doesn't mean it's absent of pain and suffering and sorrow and all of those things. We'll see today um, that it is full of those things. And all of those feelings are appropriate. But even in the midst of those, there's this weird thing that happens where we go, man, I wouldn't wish this on anybody. But there is no other way I could grow the way I'm growing without going through this right now. And we'll see that if you're a believer, um, that you have security, you have peace, as we're going to look at today, um, regardless of the circumstances in this life. So let's keep moving. Um, trials. We are not exempt from trials in this life. And I mentioned Corona is one of those, um, but the scriptures talk about this all the time. Jesus himself said this, John 16, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. 1 Peter 4, Peter lays it out and he says, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes on you to test you as though something strange was happening to you. So Peter says, hey, don't act like this is strange. Don't be surprised when you go through trials. So the question is, if God is sovereign, if he is over all things, if he is the one that in his infinite wisdom is allowing these things to happen, where in the world does Satan come in? What is he doing? How is he using these? Because Satan has a role in this. And no chapter in the Bible captures this more than James chapter 1. And there's a few verses that I want you to see because James makes the distinction here. And I promise this is all going to come together. This is applicable for where we're going today. But James chapter 1 says this. He says this in verse 2. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. Here's our word there. Trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So trials and testing right here in these first few verses. Count it joy. He one-ups Peter. Peter says, don't be surprised. James says, count it joy when you face these trials because they're producing something in you. Paul would say, outwardly we're wasting away, but inwardly we're being renewed day by day. That these trials are conforming us to the image of Christ. They're producing something in us. They're perfecting us. And don't think that we'll become perfect. But Paul, or James is communicating that this is conforming us to his image. We're being perfected. And we'll never attain that in this life. 
but we are being more like, made more like Jesus over time. As we behold his glory, as we remain steadfast, as we persevere in the trial. And then he says this in verse 12. He says some other things, but we won't get into those until we walk through James verse by verse. Lord willing, we'll do that eventually. But he says this in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Here's our word again. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. And you may be like, wait, 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 hold on a second. James has just been talking about tests and trials for four or five verses, and then he throws out the word temptation. Why in the world is he doing that? Because our enemy has methods, and your circumstances always have side effects. And whenever you go through a trial, you better believe that there's a temptation coming. And James knows this, so he separates the two. Look at what he says. He says, when you're tempted, let no one say, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by what? By his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Every trial, every external circumstance carries with it a temptation. And James is saying, hey, God will test you, but he will not tempt you. God will allow you to go through a trial, but he will not tempt you to sin. That's where the enemy comes in. And all of us know that hard circumstances, painful circumstances often lead to poor choices because we don't like to feel pain. We don't know how to do pain. So much of us, when we go through stress, when we go through anxiety, we do whatever we have to do to avoid feeling that. And that's where the temptation comes in. That's where the enemy comes in and entices us. Uh, we see this all over the world. We saw this in 2016 with Ryan Lochte, famous swimmer on the USA team. Was like on the heels of Michael Phelps's, you know, greatest two Olympics ever. And he has this test where he feels like he has to live up to the name. He has to prove himself. He has to compete with the records that Phelps has set before him. You can imagine that's a trial, right? That's a test. That's a stressful experience. So he gets to the 2016 Olympics in Brazil, and what does he do? He's feeling this test. God gives him a test. Here comes the temptation. Hey, that feels stressful. You don't want to feel that. Go drink some of this stuff, and you won't feel that anymore. So what does he do? Him and his buddy start to drink. They end up at a gas station. They end up vandalizing the gas station. Here's another trial. Cops get called. Could, you know, confess, hey, I was wrong, but here comes another temptation. Painful circumstances lead to poor choices. He decides to lie. Why? Because he wants to save face and to try to get out of this and ends up making up a lie and all that to say gets busted, right? We see this over and over again. When you are put in a hard circumstance, you're tempted to make some poor choices. We saw this with Nixon. Nixon was thinking he was going to lose re-election in 1972. Thought he was going to lose, so what does he decide to do? Hey, here's the test, stressed out, thinking I might lose. Here comes the temptation. Why don't you send some boys over there to the Democratic National Committee and wiretap the phones? And here he does. Guess what? FBI finds out, they get involved, test again. 
bad situation. Could come clean, but here comes the temptation. Just start firing those people. Get the CIA to try to go against it. All these kind of things, right? And it just blew up. And we can, you know, say, well, that was them, but you and I are no different, right? Things are going well at work. Test. Temptation. Change the numbers. Throw somebody under the bus. Lie about your performance. Cheat at work. Test, going through a trial, going through a kind of a, a dull season in your marriage. Here comes the temptation. Oh, that person at your office, they make you seem, make you feel heard and seen and respected. Start a conversation with them. Oh, there's that person that you went to high school with. Send a message to them on social media, right? When we go through tests, the temptation is really close by. God will allow us to go through trials to grow us, to produce things in us, but he will not test you to sin. God will put the tree in the garden, but he will not tempt Adam and Eve to eat the fruit. Genesis 3, God puts the tree in the garden, but you don't see God come up to Adam and Eve and say, hey, remember when I said don't eat that fruit? It looks good, doesn't it? Are you hungry? No, somebody else does that. The enemy does that, and he will lie to you. His game is lies. Over and over and over again, he will prey on your desires, and he will lie. But there is a difference between being tested, going through a trial, and being tempted. God will test you, but he will not tempt you. And Satan will have a heyday with the trial that you're going through. And we see over and over in Scripture that he is a liar. Everything he does will be based on lies. The first temptation was lies. Did God really say, don't eat the fruit? Did God really say, you know what? God's afraid that you'll be like him. Go ahead and eat this. Lie after lie. The first temptation was lies, and they will always be lies. He will come to you and pray on your desires. John 8, 44. This is Jesus talking to these Pharisees. He says, you are the father you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. Revelation 12, and the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil, Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, lies. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Revelation 20, and he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the pit, shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. His schemes will always be based on lies. And this is why the first armor that Paul ever tells us to put on is the belt of truth. It's the piece of the armor that all the other pieces converge on because you will fall prey to the lies if you don't know the truth. And all the other pieces of the armor are based on what's true and what's right. And this is why he says, put on the armor. And he says that it will cause us to stand. The whole purpose of this paragraph is that you and I would stand, that we would withstand, that we would resist. And I love that. It's our job to just stand firm, to persevere under trial, to withstand. He says this in verse 13 of Ephesians 6. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. 
Verse 14, stand, therefore, having fastened the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So he uses stand in there four times. Put on the whole armor that you'll be able to stand. Put on this so you'll be able to withstand, having done all to stand. And then he finally gives us a command, and the command is stand, resist, dig your feet in the ground, persevere under the attacks and the accusations of the enemy. Persevere under his lies. Withstand, stand firm. And I love that. God is fighting this battle for us. He has already defeated Satan at the cross. He's defeated death. And he will send him to hell forever when he returns. And now our job is, as his children is just to stand and to persevere. And you see this all throughout scripture. James 4, verse 7. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil. Withstand him and he'll flee. 1 Peter 5. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Withstand him. 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. We stand in this gospel. 1 Corinthians 16. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. And I could go on and on and on. I think you get the point. There's three or four more verses in here um, that I'll send you if you want them. But I need to move on. That this is our charge. That you and I, that we would stand against the accusations of the enemy. That we would know what's true. That we would be able to withstand all of his attacks with God's strength and God's armor. And then he says this in verse 15. He tells us to put on um, the belt of truth. He tells us to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Belt of truth so we'll be able to withstand the lies. The breastplate of righteousness so that when the enemy comes at you and says you'll never be good enough, you're broken, you're dirty, you're messed up, you're insignificant, you're not valuable, you get to say, you know what, I, you're right, I'm not. But praise God that his grace is not based on my righteousness, that I have his righteousness on me. So yeah, you're exactly right. But God has given me his perfect righteousness. The righteous has died for the unrighteous. And that's the beauty of the gospel. And then he says, put on these shoes. Verse 15, and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, this is worded a little weird. I used to think this said, put on the gospel shoes. But notice what he says. Just like shoes, put on readiness. Put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So what is this readiness? Now, this word readiness in the Greek, it means, um, it means firm footing. It means being prepared. It means having traction, having protection, um, and being nimble, being light, which is ironic, or not ironic, it's very interesting because this is exactly what the sandals of a Roman soldier were meant to do. If you were a Roman soldier in the first century, you would put on these sandals, and they were made of thick, thick leather. And then they would take these little hobnails and they would nail them into the bottom of the sandals so that the nails would stick out from underneath it. It was basically like the OG cleats. Like you would have on these sandals two straps, thick leather, and they would have these spikes, these nails coming out of the bottom of them. And they were meant to give you traction. They were meant to give you firm footing. But then they were also meant to protect you because there wasn't landmines back in biblical warfare. So if you had an enemy approaching you, you would put sharp sticks, you would put sharp metal in the ground sticking up so that they would step on it. Because if you were a Roman soldier and you lost your traction, you lost your footing, you didn't have your cleats on, and you fell, 
You were dead. If you stepped on something sharp and you had a foot injury as you were trying to hobble through warfare, you weren't going to make it. And they were meant to give you traction. They were meant to protect your feet from these spikes and these sharp objects in the ground. But then they were also meant to be really light. Notice they weren't these big, heavy boots. They were these sandals, thick leather, strapped on tight. And they were meant to be light because so many armies had to walk forever before they even started in combat. They were meant to be an easy burden to bear. And I love that. So Paul is saying, put that on. Put on this readiness. Put on this traction, this firm footing. Put on this protection and put on this, um, this light burden, this mobility given to you by the gospel of peace. Now, what's so fascinating is that, or what's ironic is that as Paul is talking about warfare, he refers to the gospel as the gospel of peace as we're getting ready for war. And notice he doesn't say the gospel of love. He doesn't say the gospel of mercy. He doesn't say the gospel of joy. And all of those would have been accurate. You can describe the gospel with all of those things, but he calls it the gospel of peace as we're getting ready for war. And what's so ironic and what's so beautiful about the gospel is that it's peace that gives us firm footing. It's the peace of the Lord that gives us traction. It's the peace of the Lord that protects us. It's the peace of the Lord that gives us this mobility. And it's right here in scripture. It's all over it. In fact, if you want a good word to describe the gospel, you can pick love in the gospel race. You can pick because pick peace. Try summarizing the gospel using peace because that was God's intent. In the garden, Adam and Eve were created and they were at peace with God and peace with one another. Genesis 3 happens. They believe the lie of the enemy. He preys on their desires. God tests them. He brings temptation, the enemy. They give in, and suddenly peace with God is broken. Peace with each other is broken. The curse, we don't have time to read the curses of the fall, um, but the curses literally state that from that point on, man would struggle to lead and the woman would struggle to follow. And you see this all through relationships today, that there's not peace because of this struggle, that there we're broken peace with God and we've broken peace with each other. And what happens? The God of the universe sends the prince of peace to restore peace. And here's what I want to say for just a second. Um, it is a fearful thing to realize that you and I are not at peace with God. In fact, um, in Romans 1, Paul would even call us, if, you're, if we're not in Christ, he would say we're haters of God. Um, in Romans 8, he says we're hostile to God. In Colossians 1, he says we're alienated from God and hostile um, Romans 5, he says we're enemies of God. Like, it's a fearful thing to realize that you and I, that we were enemies of God. That is a fearful thing. And it's funny, I have people come to me all the time and say, hey, Parker, um, like, I got saved, but it was because I was really afraid. Like, does that count? Does that work? And if I'm honest, that was my story as an eight-year-old. I heard my dad talk about judgment and condemnation and eternal punishment from sin, and I got really afraid. And I still have people come to me and they're like, hey, that's how my relationship with God started. Um, does, is that okay? And my answer is yes, if it didn't stay that way. And it's funny because we actually sing about this. We sing about this all the time when we sing Amazing Grace. What do we sing? "'Twas grace that taught my heart to what? To fear. That in God's kindness, he um, shows us what we deserve. 
He shows us that we're against him, that our sin deserves punishment, that we deserve his condemnation. But what's the very next line? In grace, my fears relieved. That God is so generous to show us what we deserve, but then he's so good and he's so compassionate and he's so kind and he's so merciful that he's taken that punishment on himself. That's what's so amazing about it. Yes, God uses fear to draw people to himself, but then his goodness and his kindness and his grace comes in like a wave and relieves that fear. So that yes, we start with, oh man, this is what I deserve, but then we realize that the God of the universe is good and gracious and kind. One of my favorite quotes from the Chronicles of Narnia is when um, the four folks in the line, the rich in the wardrobe, uh, they get to Narnia and they're learning about it. You've got Edmund and Susan and all these folks, and they're learning about Narnia, and uh, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are talking to Susan about Narnia, and they're trying to explain to her how it works and all those kind of things, and they mention Aslan, and if you, don't, if you aren't familiar with Narnia, Aslan is the Jesus symbolic figure of Narnia, and they start to mention Aslan, and then Susan finds out he's a lion, and then all of a sudden, Susan gets really, really, really nervous, and she starts asking all these questions, and she's like, whoa, 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 is he a lion? And then she says, is he safe? And my favorite quote is Mr. Beaver goes, safe? Of course he isn't safe. He's a lion. But he's the king, I tell you, and he's good. He's our king, and he's good. And that's who our God is. He is not safe, but man, is he good. Is he gracious? Is he kind? He is righteous, and he will not let the guilty, he will not let sin go unpunished. But he is also merciful, and he is kind, and he's compassionate. And he gives us his grace. He gives us his mercy. That's who he is. It's his grace that teaches our heart to fear, but it's his grace that relieves that fear. When we get to know him, when we get to see his heart and his compassion and his character, that's what makes him so good. And while we were enemies of God, God sent the Prince of Peace. It was prophesied in the Old Testament that he would bring peace. It says uh, in Romans 5, before we get to the Old Testament, it says this, while we were enemies, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we're reconciled, shall we live, shall we be saved by his life. Romans 5, 1, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that peace was prophesied in the Old Testament. We see that peace was announced at Jesus' birth, that um, the angels say, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace with whom his favor is rest. We see Jesus say, peace I give to you. We see Jesus in John 16 says, in this world, uh, I say all these things that in me you may have peace. In this world you have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And we have peace with the God of the universe if we're in Christ. And that peace with God brings peace within. And let me say this, if you walked in here this morning and you are looking for internal peace, you will never get it until you become right, until you are at peace with the God of the universe. Until you are at peace with the one who made you, you will never have peace inside. And you will be like me before I met Jesus, looking for peace in all of the wrong places, in relationships, in status, in earthly possessions, in achievements, in all of these things. You will never have peace within until you have peace with the one who made you. And that can only be found through the person of Jesus Christ. And Paul is telling us in this passage that that peace, when you realize that you're at peace with the God of the universe because of what Jesus has done for you, it will bring peace within. It will. 
It will bring peace within. And this peace will give you traction. It will give you firm footing. It will give you protection. It will give you mobility. It'll give you traction. It'll give you this assurance. You're able to withstand all of life's circumstances when you know that nothing can snatch you out of God's hand. There's a peace in that. When you read Romans 8 and see that it begins with there's no condemnation and it ends with there's no separation from his love. There's a peace in that. That when you realize if you're in Christ that there is no condemnation on you. No one can condemn you. Who can bring a charge against you? Nobody. And nothing on this earth could ever separate you from God's love. There's a peace that you can walk with daily in that. It will give you firm footing no matter what life brings at you. And it will protect you. That as you walk through suffering, and I say this, I know I say this all the time, but it is so true. God will get the glory one day when he removes all of our pain and all of our suffering. And he promises that he will do that. But until then, you know what gives him what I think the most glory? Is that when you are walking through your hardest days, when you're walking through the valley, that you're able to stand up and say, his grace is sufficient for me. And you have peace in the middle of the trial. You have peace in the middle of the storm. That's what makes him look glorious. That's the protection that we have in the gospel. That no matter what happens to us in this life, we can have peace. It's Philippians 1. I'm here on earth, I get Christ. They, they kill me, I get to be with Christ. Other people are rising up and being more important than me. Are they preaching Christ? Yeah. Then, oh well, I rejoice. Doesn't matter what you do to me. I'm at peace. Why? Because I have him. And in the gospel, I have peace. I have firm footing I have protection, and then lastly, I have mobility. This burden is light that Jesus calls us. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I'll give you rest. That as we keep casting our burdens on him, he gives us his burden. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. That the burden we have in the gospel is light. That you and I, we can walk with this light footing. We can have firm footing. We can have traction, we can have protection, but you and I, if you are in Christ, you get to walk through this life casting your burdens on him. And he gives you his burden, which is easy. It's his grace, it's his mercy, it's his kindness. And we get to carry that all throughout our days. And that's the readiness that we have in the gospel. And if you want to withstand the lies and the accusations of the enemy, Paul says, put that on. Put on the readiness, put on the firm footing, the protection, and the mobility that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Amen. So if you've never received that this morning, I want to give you a chance to receive it. If you realize this morning that you are not at peace with God, all of this peace, all of this stuff that we've been talking about this morning is freely offered to you. Make no mistake, no one is in here because they've done something to earn peace with God. The reason we gather, the reason we worship, the reason we raise our hands is because we know we could never get it on our own. And the Prince of Peace has come down to earth and he has took on God's punishment, God's wrath, so that you and I could be at peace with the God of the universe. And if you've never received that peace, we want to give you a chance to receive it. And it is through a personal relationship with Jesus. And if you want to pray that, I'll invite everyone to bow your heads and close your eyes this morning. And if that's you, and I'm not trying to do any manipulation, if you're in here and you're like, Parker, I know you were talking right to me. I'm not at peace with God. I've been trying to find internal peace in all the wrong places. And I want a relationship with God. I want to be at peace with the person who made me, the God of the universe. Then you can pray a prayer. And the 
words aren't magic. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But he doesn't say if you pray a special or magic prayer. Um, but my hope is that as I lead you through a prayer, that this prayer would reflect what you're feeling in your heart. That you would confess with your mouth and believe in your heart and that this prayer would reflect that. Um, but you can just pray something like, dear God, I know I'll never measure up. God, I know I'm not at peace with you because of my sin. But God, I thank you that you sent your son to take my punishment, to take my place on the cross. And that he died for my sin. God, I ask him to forgive me. God, I'm thankful that he does. God, I thank you that he rose from the dead. And I believe in him. I'm no longer trusting in my own works to gain peace with God. I trust in the finished work of Jesus. And he's Lord of my life. Then you can just thank him. Thank him for saving you. It is that free. It is that good. It is that amazing. This is why we sing. Because the God of the universe has made a way for us to have eternal peace with him. And it is in that peace that we can stand, that we can live that we can walk, that we can endure trial, that we can have firm footing on our hardest day on this earth, knowing that one day we will see him face to face and be eternally at peace forever. And nothing can take that away. But if you prayed that prayer, I'll be around after the service. Lance is gonna mention a response card. You can let us know in multiple ways, um, but we would be thrilled to disciple you through that decision and continue to walk with you. Um, as you start this new journey of following Jesus. Lord, this is why we sing. God, we stand in your power. We stand in your peace. We stand in your love. God, we have nothing to bring to the table. But in your kindness, you give us your strength. You give us your armor. God, I pray for the person, the couple in here this morning that is going through the valley. God, that has put on a face as they walked in here this morning just to survive. God, I pray that you would give them freedom to feel. All throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus weeping. But God, he's not weeping as he shies away. He's weeping as he continues to press in, as he endures. So God, I pray that you give them room and permission to feel, and you would give them strength to endure, knowing that this trial, that this season is conforming them to the image of your son, and it is in that promise that they can stand firm. They can denounce the lies of the enemy. They can see right through them and they can focus on your truth. God, help us all to do that today. We worship you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. Let's remember who he is. Declare. Oh, you bring Hope to the hopeless and light to those in the dark.